0: Hello. This may be the penultimate episode of Bridges to the Future, or perhaps the penultimate episode sponsored by the RSA. We'll soon know. But say it was the end, and imagine that in a hundred years a museum decided to curate an exhibition on the history of podcasts, and to use an extract from one of my 200 or so shows. Would that extract be classified by geography, perhaps, in a a section on the English pod? Or maybe because podcasts would then have been transformed into AI generated, personalized virtual reality conversations, or perhaps the extract would be used to illustrate the early unsophisticated days of the pod. Or perhaps it would be classified by type in the exhibit on book-based podcasts. Of course, none of this is likely to happen. But these questions of how we classify human endeavour and creativity can be more than technical. They can be freighted with meaning and politics. This is one of many engaging subjects in the fascinating book I'll be discussing on this edition of Bridges to the Future. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome anthropologist and historian, author Adam Cooper, author of The Museum of Other People, from colonial acquisitions to cosmopolitan exhibitions. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much. Good morning. So as I just said, Adam Bridges may be going through some kind of transition. So I'm, I'm in a slightly self-indulgent mood at the moment. So I'm just going to point out to you that this is the second time you'll be interviewed by a member of the Taylor family. And I'm determined to do better than my father on his program a few weeks ago. That's a tough call. <laughs> we were both discussing your book last week and saying how much we enjoyed it. I want Adam to focus on three issues. I want to explore the origins of museums of people. I want then to explore that issue I highlighted in the introduction, which is this kind of decades-long debate about how to classify objects and the meaning that lay behind those debates. And then finally to turn to the current arguments about whether objects should be returned to whoever is deemed to have been the original owner. But before we get into these three big kind of issues that run through your book, just define for us the kind of museum we're talking about here.
1: Well, it emerges in the context of the other museum. So it was first called in a wonderful phrase by one of the early French museum builders, the third kind of museum. He said the third kind of object. So the one kind of museum, the original kind of museum was the Museum of the greatest achievements historically and in the presence of civilizations. Europeans were very engaged at the time, late 18th, early 19th century, with the idea of what made them so marvelous, so great, or at least the upper classes or the most advanced people in the most advanced societies. And the museums then dealt with the few high points of what they regarded as their own history, so classical civilizations ancient Rome and Greece, and then the revival of these classical civilizations in the Renaissance, and then with the high achievements of what in Britain we would call a Victorian society. And this was art, industry, science. Then the second kind of museum was the Museum of Natural History. So that was about plants, about evolution of animals, about... The nature of human beings as compared to all other kinds of animals in the world. The third kind of object, that was what was left out. That was things made by people who were not members of the great civilizations. They were folk objects or primitive objects. They were very old often. So, in the wonderful phrase also of one of the early builders of museums, it dealt with the things made by people who lived far away or long ago.
0: So Adam, to what extent do you think that, in a sense, the way these museums evolved right up to the current debates is always overshadowed by, on the one hand, this kind of sense of Western superiority, and on the other hand, the fact that so many of the kind of early exhibits in these museums were in one way or another kind of plundered, or perhaps that's not fair, but I'm interested in the relationship between the origins of the museums and how we now perceive them. To answer that question, I first got to fill in another kind of museum of other people,
1: where the objects of the other people were not defined in, in contrast to civilization, but they were defined rather locally, geographically. So if you think of the museum of other people as characteristically a museum of imperial civilizations, then the alternative, the competitor, was a museum of the colonized people. So remember that until World War I, virtually, well, the majority of Europeans were living within empires, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and of course, the Russian Empire. And within these empires, the imperial classes had this idea that everybody was moving up some kind of ladder to their position. They should learn their language and worship their gods and so on. But the local people were often resisting this and they were resisting this with a model which said, no, we have our own culture, which is right for us. It fits in with our geography, with our locality, with our own particular history, and also with the kind of people we are, because the kind of people we are shaped by this geography and by our what they came to call, in contrast to civilization, our culture. And so these museums of local culture, which you had, were museums of some exotic local people, but they were also our own museums of what we were like before imperialism and industrialization. So these were what came in Europe to be called folklore museums, museums of ordinary people, living a happy life before they were taken over by some imperial power. So those were two kinds of museums, and those two kinds of museums dealt with objects in a different context. The first exoticized them and said how different they were from us. The second kind of museum were our family heirlooms before we became corrupted by
0: some imperial civilization and their banks and their stock exchanges and so on. And so this takes me to the second topic, which was one I just never thought about before, and I found absolutely fascinating, was the various ways in which you know anthropologists, curators, academics of various kinds thought about how you should classify these objects. And what I what I found fascinating about them was it was partly a kind of technical question. It was just a matter of you have got all this stuff, and how do you best lay this stuff out so that when people walk around a museum, it, it Feels kind of coherent, it kind of works. But also, as you're saying, that there was also a kind of intellectual dimension to this, which is well, what is it that is interesting? What is the best way for us to understand things? Is it by, for example, Exploring the the meaning of a particular type of object. So let's put all the cooking utensils that we find all around the world throughout history and and we'll understand the kind of differing meaning of of cooking or the similarity of the things that we've used. Or as you say, this kind of notion of of evolution and development. And so these are, they're partly technical, they're partly intellectual, and also, of course, they are political. They become politicized. Just explore with a, you know, a couple of those kinds of debates, because I, as I say I'd not have come across this, but it was fascinating. Well, you're absolutely right. You're getting to the core
1: of many of the debates which occur within the circles of the museum world for 200 years, really. Now, when museum people begin to think about classifying objects, what kind of objects they've got, how, how to sort them, then they are dealing with, first of all, the big models. What kind of a world are we in? Are we in a world of People who are on some kind of ladder to civilization, a narrative that we can talk about, or are we talking just about geographical differences, local cultural difference? And when they were looking for systems of classification, the first call was on natural sciences, natural history. Because of course that debate had been that was at the heart of theories of natural societies. So the first one was the ideas of Linnaeus, which dominated the 18th century debates on classification of natural objects, and those were in terms of family histories, different family histories. Then in the 19th century, you get Cuvier in France and later Darwin in England, developing different kinds of classifications of objects because they have different visions of the way in which these objects developed and fitted into the world. So a lot of the first anthropological museums are based on biological models, natural history models of classification. And in the 19th century, these become defined as evolutionary models. But apart from that, you have in Germany, the development of very strong geographical schools, many of which are geographically determinist. They say it is the local environments which shape local kinds of developments of all kinds. So these become the two models in the museums. Either you model everything geographically, you sort your stuff out geographically, or you sort out your stuff by some very long-term historical stages. And the the stages begin to be defined as Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, and then finally the age of industrialism. So those are the, the main forms of classification. Then you've got to ask, well, what kinds of objects are interesting? Then you get into a whole other debate. Are we dealing with things that are beautiful? Is it some kind of artistic thing that we're looking at? Are we thinking about useful things, showing how different kinds of techniques developed in history or developed locally? Or are we just going to include the objects of everyday life, cooking utensils, clothes, beds, all those things of everyday life? Those are the kinds of debates They go on and on and on and on until we come to the present day where curators are saying, oh my goodness, what are people interested in? They're only interested in art. They're only interested in things that are beautiful. So we have to have a new kind of museum where the old museums of other people are represented just
0: by the most beautiful, striking, wonderful artistic objects you can find. One other dimension of this, Adam, is our cognitive machinery drives us into various forms of kind of perceptual polarities, it seems to me. And one of those is things are either we either look at things in terms of how similar they are to us or how different they are to us. And that's another kind of question, it seems to me, in the way in which things are presented to us in museums. Are we invited to to gasp? with incredulity at how different other people were, how different their lives were, or with recognition when we think, oh yes, well, that's a cooking pot, and I understand what a cooking pot is. Oh yes, that's a religious practice and no different from my own religious practices. That's another dimension, isn't it? That kind of sense of, are we looking for similarity? or Are we looking for difference?
1: Yes, and I think that the curators often, and indeed the museum goes, are hoping for both responses here is something that looks very exotic. Oh my goodness, I now see what it's about and I can relate to it. Well, now it's been explained to me and I can understand it. Or let's look at this stuff and say, oh my goodness, how remarkably, either beautifully or horribly exotic it is, how far it is from my own kind of sensibilities. What kind of people could have made these these things? And so I think the visitor to the museum is going backwards and forwards between these
0: responses often. And there's a couple of other strands, Adam, of the book I really enjoy. One is just the kind of eccentricity of some of the people that you talk about. And, and actually, often the rather prosaic problem is there's just so much stuff. And how do you deal with all this stuff that people collect and then hand over to museums? Or they have all the stuff and then they set up a museum. There's some wonderful characters in your book, Adam. Thank you very much. I enjoyed them very much too. Pick out one or two.
1: Well, one of the, the big eccentrics is General Petrivers. Rivers. Mm. was very well known by anybody in this country, certainly. Any visit to Oxford should not be complete without a visit to the Petrivers Museum. Pitt Rivers was an army general, came from really sort of minor branch of the English aristocracy. But by good fortune, just by chance, he inherited a huge amount of property and cash from a cousin of his mother's who had no other descendants, except for General Petruvas. And so he was able to engage in a kind of international prize race for the best antiquities and the best exotic that he could find, He had built these enormous collections. And he tried to place them in various museums and eventually they got fed up, he was just taking over too much space. But he also had a very particular idea which he learned from borrowed in a rather particular individual way from Darwin and from Herbert Spencer, which was a particular take on the idea of evolution. And his take on the idea of evolution was that objects were the best way of showing the development, the gradual development of civilizations. And that this was a universal rule. Everything was getting better. Everything was getting more advanced. Everything was getting more efficient and that the working people of England should be shown this in order to show that development is guaranteed. All you must do is not interfere with the course of development. So just be happy that you're in England, which is the most advanced of these societies, and getting better all the time. So he, he has this collection. He then eventually says to Oxford University, look, take this. I'm going to build a museum, call it the Pitt Rivers Museum, and this museum is going to be dedicated to this theory of gradual advance of civilization. And it must use what he called my typology. And Oxford University buys it. And there it still is today, a museum which is really, first of all, a museum of Victorian ideas represented by these typologies, but it's also a museum of his own obsessions. This is his personal worldview set in stone, organized beautifully in its peculiar way and which has been, as it originally, was formed for over 150 years. It's a remarkable story.
0: Yes, and I just read your book when I we did an episode of Moral Maze a couple of weeks ago about the issue of repatriation, and one of the people speaking at that was a curator from the Pit Rivers Museum who was standing in the museum as we interviewed him on Moral Maze. So <laughs> that was fascinating. He was very keen on the idea of returning as much as could be returned, and I'll get into that in a second. Just tell us about one other character, I think, I'd like to know more about your view of his intellectual significance, and that's Franz Boas, if I pronounce that correctly. he's a he's a very important figure, it feels it feels to me.
1: Yes. Boas is a really important figure, and he's a really important figure in the history of these museums of other people. He was an ethnologist, as they called it, an anthropologist, trained in the German tradition, which was very geographical. He comes to the United States, makes a career first in museums. And then in the 1920s, really makes his life, well, he started in 1910, but by the 1920s, he's building a network of anthropology departments in American universities. And he goes out of the museums into the universities because he can't stand any longer the domination of this evolutionist model in the main American museum, particularly the Smithsonian, National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. And he wants to build an understanding in America of the importance of local developments, local histories, local cultures, local relationships. And he is completely dismissive of the idea that civilization or special developments only occur among one kind of people or in one kind of place or one time in history. Everybody has their own civilization, so far as is concerned, and they're all in their own way, remarkable, interesting, and must be studied in the Footing of equality, and the people all over the world have the same mental, psychological equipment. They all think in very much the same way, Bowers says. And not only do they think in the same way that although they might look different, biologically they are also very, very much the same. So he's, he's a pioneer of the idea that human beings are very much the same everywhere, but simply find themselves in different historical and geographical contexts. And that's what must be understood. So Boas is challenging the
0: central dogma of 19th century ethnographic museums. And so he feels, in the book, he feels like a more modern figure. He feels like what he's saying is an argument that one knows is going to kind of win out. But, you know, when he starts to make these arguments, obviously, they're much more controversial. But let's move now to the debate today. And, and I want to emphasize that you turn to these issues quite late in the book. The book is so rich that I want people to feel it's just about this debate we seem to be spending a lot of time having now about whether we should be re- kind of repatriating exhibits to, to where they originally came from. But you do turn to that debate at the end. And one of the reasons it's so fascinating where you discuss it is because you set it in this historical context. We understand it as only the latest of a set of these kinds of intellectual political debates that have taken place around museums of other people. But I think I'd be right in saying that in some ways you accept the principle that lies behind the idea of returning objects to those people who feel a particular connection with them. But you want to say that things are often much more complex than that. We should avoid a kind of reductionism? Well, absolutely. My my argument
1: is that really these challenges, these ideas of of sending stuff back and so on, must be looked at on a case-by-case basis. First of all, you've got to really go into the story of how do these materials enter this particular museum, under what circumstances. Then you've got to ask, okay, well, if there's a challenge, if there's a demand for the return of a certain object, who is making this demand in whose name? What claims are they making? Are there other people making claims at the same time, which which are countering them? And the third is, what's going to happen to these objects? Are they going to be, in some cases, merely left to rot, I mean, that might sound extreme, but in fact, that is what happens to many sacred Native American objects, which are not allowed, in some ideological formulations, not allowed to be given to non-members of the particular clans which made these things, and which were given to them by the gods and must be returned to the gods, and so they must be left totem pole, returned from the Harvard Peabody Museum to a particular clan in what is now British Columbia was left to rot. People say, well, that's what happened. Well, that seems to me to be a very strong argument against returning it to people who are going to let these things rot. Also, who are they representing? Who are the people making these claims? Okay. So let me take something more specific now. Take a case of returning Zuni war gods to the Zuni people in the Americas, which is a big debate in American museums. And Zulu claim and say, well, these are sacred and these are causing all sorts of spiritual damage, perhaps to the whole world. If they're in the Harvard Peabody Museum, the world will be better if they're returned to us to be left to rot. What kind of argument is that? Do we take that seriously? Why shouldn't we say these things are wonderful? They've been held for 200 years by this museum. They are admired by visitors who come, who therefore are made to greatly admire the kinds of people who made them. They have opened their eyes to another way of life, another kind of art, another kind of civilization. They have a terrific role for the world. To be left to rot in order to satisfy some local activists who are trying to build a political base on the basis of local identity is not a good solution. So, The arguments have to, you know, you can make a counter argument to what I'm saying, but I'm just saying these are issues that have to be taken into account in that particular case. In another case, the Binnen and Bronzes, which are very important debates in England and Germany at the moment, the argument is not that these weren't taken by force. They were certainly were taken by force. But the question is on so-called repatriation. Who should they be given back to? So one claim is being made by the National Museum of Nigeria. Now, the National Museum of Nigeria has several hundred, perhaps 500, Benin bronze in its possession. None are on show in the National Museum in Lagos because it is too insecure and there have been too many thefts. And in any case, the National Museum in Lagos is in such bad shape that they have something like an average of 30 visitors a day, mostly parties of school children. But there's a counter- claim to these Benin bronzes. There's a local entrepreneur in Edo province, where Benin city is, who with the local governor said, look, we've got a plan to build a new museum here, which is going to be devoted entirely to the Benin bronzes. So give us all the Benin bronzes in the world and we'll have this wonderful museum of Benin bronze. But the king, the Oba of Benin, who was descended from the original court which made these objects is, no, these are my family objects. These are the treasures of the family. We will build a museum. You give it to us and and we will deal with this. So these are these claims. And there's another claim, which is a very interesting one. There's a group called the Restitution Study Group, which is an African-American pressure group led by a very dynamic African-American woman lawyer in New York City, who is suing the Smithsonian Institution Who wants to return Benin bronzes to Nigeria. And she's suing them and she's saying, these bronzes are the product of the enslavement of people. Black Americans in the United States, we were enslaved by the people who were making these bronzes. Not only were enslaved by them, we were sold against coppers. Copper was the main currency that the Benin kingdoms were demanding in exchange for slaves. Of course, also rifles and guns and so on. So we were literally exchanged for these bronzes. We have the claim on these bronzes. We should be the people who say what should happen to them. And we want them to be returned to a way in which we can profit from them. We can share in them. So these claims to restitution can be very, very complicated. The arguments can be very, very difficult. And then there is the claim of the great museums to say, we have preserved them. We have held them for 200 years. We can explain to people. We can show them to people in relationship to
0: other great objects and our traditions of the time and day. So, I mean, Adam, I, I got so much from your argument. And, and indeed, that's why when we discussed this topic on Morrame's, rather than simply saying, yes, I agree with the repatriation. I said, I agree with the principle, but I think in practice, you do have to look at it on a case by case. I was totally influenced by your argument. I guess the... The only thing I'd want to set on the other side is that I do think that some of the arguments made by people against repatriation, who argue, I don't know, that we need to keep the you know Rosetta Stone in a particular place because it's always been, you know, because it's been there or because the scholarship is based in the, in the British Museum or, or whatever it might be, that these are somewhat precious arguments, I think, very often. And there are two things. First, all of our museums have enormous numbers of exhibits hidden away. So actually, yes, you might have to return some of the stuff that you've got, the algum Moles or whatever it might be, but there's plenty of other stuff that you can put on show. And also, I hope this isn't too prosaic a point, but actually we live in a world of perfect replicas. And I'm not sure how much it detracts. Maybe people say, well, You know, we have to have the Elgin marbles because of the particular context in which they're exhibited in the British Museum and the history they show. Well, you know, if you had perfect replicas, what bloody difference is it going to make? We can't touch the things. So I kind of agree with your attempt to say, let us not just say that any claim to restitution must be honoured. Let's think about the case on a case by case basis. But I'm also kind of slightly impatient with those people who say no, we we must resist restitution because it's somehow going to leave an enormous hole at the centre of our great British institutions.
1: I agree entirely with everything you've said there. I think that actually one of the these perfect replica arguments is is a very interesting way to go. And I've been testing it on various people. I've been saying, would would you go to the British Museum to see a perfect replica of the Rosetta Stone? Or would you feel somehow cheated? Even if you couldn't possibly tell the difference at all, would you feel somehow it's less than I want? If I could have the perfect replica of the Rosetta Stone in my house, if I could buy it, if it was sold in the British Museum shop now, and I could buy it for a few hundred pounds and have it in my house, would I still not want to actually go and see the thing itself, see it in the race to others? I don't know. There is some magic about the authentic thing. But that's not the important point. I think that the future is not a future of sorting stuff out so everything is somehow sent back or sent to places which originally came from. I don't think that's an answer. I think that what we need is a world in which museums all over the world are brought into networks of exchanges and borrowings. The great museums are showing between 1% and 3% of their holdings. So they have huge storms. Let us treat them as lending libraries between museums and let us build international traveling exhibits which rely on borrowing from a number of museums and which make particular kinds of cases, make particular displays about the relationships between cultures and objects and people, which set the Benin bronzes in relationship to the bronzes of other Nigerian or West African kingdoms at the time, and in relationship also to the exchanges which are coming with Europe, because of course the uh, Benin bronzes also copy European models and influence European models. They're part of a, a wider exchange. Everything is part of a wider international exchange relationship, even from some of the earliest Stone Age findings that we've got. So that's my future of the museum. My future of the museum is a fluid, flexible, international series of exchanges, which involve also exchanges of curators, exchanges of staff. So the great museums are also training internationally local museum directors. The British Museum is doing some of this now. It should be done on a more international and and a more solid, interesting basis. And finally, there must be more debate about what the museums are about, which means, in the end, a debate about our ideas of world history, our ideas of world relationships, of international connection. We need a debate which is not about, I own this, no, it's mine, no, it's yours, no, who are you to talk about ebon and bronze if you don't come from from whatever. It's a world which also expertise must count. It's a world in which museums must have a much more self-conscious program for what they are about and how they're going to train and how they're going to change Too many museums are stuck in their old ways.
0: Well, thank you, Adam. And as that implies, the book ends on a positive note and with a, I think, a kind of inspiring account of the museums that we should want to have. And in fact, it seems to me this very question of who does it belong to is a reactionary question, actually. And the progressive answer is that in some sense, it has to belong to us all. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Much of what is crudely referred to as wokery is an attempt to correct for the injustices of the past and the imprint they still leave on society. It's also an attempt, this time, to do what is really necessary to bring about equity. But it does often feel to me in these debates, which can become so heated and polarized, that it would help if we could talk a bit more about ultimately where we want to get to. As Adam Cooper says, surely the aim of the movement to repatriate objects, which have been illicitly gained, it's not a world where people can only go to museums to see things that were created by the people who happen to have lived in the same national space as them. What a kind of barren idea that is. So when Adam has his vision, ultimately, of where we want to get to, he supports and accepts the principle of repatriation. But we have to have this notion, this vision of a cosmopolitan museum. It confirms to me that sense that whilst change is difficult and change is often necessary, perhaps it would be easier if we could explore a common idea of the destination we would like to reach. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game-changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.